my end of year price target for 2026 is 150k. That I think is is very cheap. Should I, I'd even bump it up to 20 2025 at this point. And the reason that I think it's achievable is because you now have an entire population, the wealthiest country on the planet, primed to understand Bitcoin's value in a way that they have never been primed to understand. This episode of Empire is brought to you by QuickNode. QuickNode is an end-to-end blockchain development platform that makes building Web3 apps super easy. No matter what you want to build, you can effortlessly develop any application by leveraging their Elastic APIs. Go to quicknode.com, use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their feature-backed build plan. That's right. Go to quicknode.com. You'll get a free month to start playing around. You'll hear more about QuickNode later in the show. All right, guys. Welcome back to Empire. Jonah, Avi, good to have you guys. How you doing? Hey, it's great to great to be here. Thanks for uh, having us back on. Thanks for having us back, Yana. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. All right, guys. So I want to um. Here, here's like my vision for this conversation. I think there's already been a lot of podcasts about like contextualizing macro and like why did SVB happen and kind of what's going to happen with this credit contagion. I want to try to draw a line from that kind of stuff. Well, I want to figure out how to draw this like through line from that into crypto. And I think the place to start is a question for you, Avi. Um, when I look at the market and I'm not as deep into the market as you guys are, there's like two very conflicting signals. One signal is that the Fed, everyone kind of expected the Fed to hike again later in the year. Um, the other signals like the two year is going down, suggest the Fed might pivot. The two year cross the Fed funds. That's like pretty good sign that the Fed is going to kind of turn around here. Um, there's like this rush into in, in demand for, for safety into the two year and things like that. Um, but then you have like inflation data coming in hot. And so like, I think there's the big question in the market today is like, what is the Fed going to do? And I'm, I'm curious. And then that obviously trickles down into the risk assets like Bitcoin and ETH and stuff like that. So Avi, what, how, how are you thinking about this right now? I think it's a, I, I would, I would reframe that as like, what is the Fed going to do into what it, can the Fed possibly do? Mm. Right. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, the, the, the rates, the move in rates could be attributed to the Fed cutting. It could be attributed to a slowdown in growth ex- expectations. You know, that it, it could be attributed to a rising risk of a severe recession versus a, a mild recession that people were, that people were thinking of. Uh, and so I'd say that this is, this is a very, very uncertain macro environment in the short term, because really what we use, we need the data to keep coming in and for us to get a little, just, just a better grasp of what's, of what's going on. But one thing that uh, has been happening uh, very constantly in this market over the last year is that these things tend to get priced in very quickly. So the vol, vol of S&P is up a ton relative to historic standards. Uh, the vol, I mean, Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's been whip, whipping around, uh, not relative to historic standards, but it's, it's been, it's been whipping around and what, what's actually happening right now, uh, is that you're getting these narratives and these moves priced in very, very, very quickly. So I look at where rates were three days before SVB went down and a day after SVB went down and it was a complete and total shift. It was a massive shift. And so what that tells you is that where the market is today, it's not really telling you anything really interesting 
because the market keeps changing so drastically and so dramatically every you know week week to week you know two three weeks before sorry in, in the begin in the beginning of fed uh, you had a nine percent chance of the fed hiking 50 bips in their march meeting and then at the beginning of march you had like a 70 percent chance of them hiking 50 bips and then now you have effectively a potential no hike priced it <laughs> so those are the, the like looking looking at the market to give you direction into what the fed is going to do has not been particularly useful right it just it's changing so constantly and so what we've been focused on and what i've been focused on uh, when it comes to trading and when it comes to investing is understanding uh, relative to expectations w what do we what do we think what do we think is going to happen so right when it was priced at nine percent the risk of a 50 bit pipe well what do, what do, what do, what do we think what do we think about that how is the market positioned for that we thought the market was way under positioned for the risk of a 50 bit pipe and when it was at 70 we thought the market was way over positioned right so it's actually about where people are putting their capital relative to you know your own your your own expectations and really looking hard at when the market when you think the market is wrong and coming to your own when your own conclusions because effectively the market has been wrong a lot over the last <laughs> eight weeks the market is like consistently wrong uh and that 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 that's what we're seeing in this yeah. case. jonah what what yeah what's your take on this yeah i mean it's it's funny you mentioned interest rate volatility avi um it's, you know i'm not an interest rate options trader but i i speak to many of them and i'm being told that the volatility you're seeing, realized volatility in short-term interest rates is 3x what was realizing during some of the worst moments of the financial crisis in 2008. So, you know, there's a bit of a reflexive mechanism, right? The Fed and the banks that are, you know, teetering right now are all sort of very focused on this short-term interest rate market in order to inform their decisions. And when you have that kind of volatility, it's, you know, volatility driven by everybody wondering or trying to price what the Fed is going to do and what's going to happen next with this banking crisis. The institutions themselves that that are causing this volatility are also watching it and being reflexively impacted by it. So it's a bit of a spiral in, in some respects uh, for, for investors if you get caught the wrong way on it. Um, ultimately, the way that it's feeding into crypto from, from my perspective is... Liquidity is getting worse. Um, capital is scarce as a result of suddenly becoming more difficult to access banking. Um, trading firms require capital to provide tight liquidity. So bid ask is wider. That again, reflexively creates a, a more volatile, gapier, more liquid market. More opportunity to get it right, but equally a lot of risk and, and a lot of transaction costs to get in and out of trades. And ultimately, I think the most interesting feature of all of this chaos was that during the you know the weekend after Silvergate and SVB went about went down, you saw Bitcoin and ETH really start to rip. I mean, that just shows you that <clears throat> when there's a flight to quality and a run on the banks, you know, crypto crypto has sort of entered a new paradigm. It's it's exited the paradigm of strong macro correlation and it's entered a new decorrelated paradigm where it represents a you know a different type of diversified risk asset once again. And I think that's super relevant. I think that's, you know, when 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 you get one of those paradigm shifts in in the way of market trades, 
there's there's usually a, a pretty exciting entry point for for something lucrative. Hmm. Yeah, I'll 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 push back. I'll like give you a little coke on that, which is that um, I think these things can exacerbate moves in the short term, but Bitcoin was also falling equities on the on the way on the way back up a little bit, but it radically outperformed equities. And so I think what like re- even relative to historic expectations. And so what I think you get when you get these narratives like a bank, you know, bank bank failures leading people to go 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 look at crypto, you're effectively pouring fuel on the fire for a move when risk moves, as opposed to, hey, this is going to cause a decoupling between risk and Bitcoin. It actually, in my opinion, probably will over a six to 12 month time period. And I, I liken this back to, uh, you know, back to 2021, like if I'm going to make an analog to the crypto markets, it's like the same, same way that uh, from J- Jan of, or sorry, from like March of 21, to April, or sorry, to uh, July of 21, Bitcoin went up a ton to 60K, came back down to 30, went to went to 40K. So kind of like chopped around in actually like a 30K to 60K range. And while that happened, Solana went from $20 to 200, right? But the moves were actually correlated month, month, month over month, right? It's like, it would just so happen that Solana would go up way more than Bitcoin when Bitcoin was going up. And then when it came down, you know, it, it tend it like came down a lot, but it ended up because of those up moves out, outperforming over time, even, even during a period of flat behavior. And I think that's probably what we'll see from Bitcoin is that you have this fuel on the fire. now. People are now sitting here. They're thinking to themselves, Hey, uh, if, <laughs> I mean, th- this is actually kind of interesting that like the type of person that had their money with, with S- SVB that got rugged. By them is actually a type of person that would be very likely to come into crypto because they're generally further down the further down the risk spectrum. So they're looking. It's like okay, if I can't trust banks, if we're literally going into a potential banking crisis, um, which I don't necessarily think we are in, uh, in in a grand way, but it does like break open the possibility of well, maybe I can't trust my bank, which is a very powerful, which is a very very powerful tool. Well, of course, fuel in the fire. When Bitcoin starts going up, people start piling into it. They start going, okay, I don't want to do this. I don't want to. I don't want to be on the sideline. Hey, this might actually be a safe place. So, I guess to, to round up to round up my, I still think we're tied a bit to risk assets, but over a six to twelve month time period, I think that Bitcoin can radically outperform because of this new narrative that's emerged. Hmm. Mechanically, how does this translate? Um, like, how does this price transmission happen? Is it big macro that's trading Bitcoin right now because they're like the kind of left bell curve take? Like, oh. Ooh, banking system collapses, Bitcoin might rip, or is it another left bell curve take? Like, uh, the Fed is probably gonna slow. Like, maybe, maybe it's less likely that the Fed hikes. So, I don't know. Risk assets start ripping, and Bitcoin's like farthest out on the risk spectrum, so they start buying Bitcoin. Or is this just crypto native funds getting excited again and piling back into Bitcoin? Like, what what's this price action actually looking like? I, I would think it's macro funds and crypto funds. Uh, I would think it's you know smart macro thinkers and people who are deeply experienced in, in the microeconomics of crypto who are buying this. I mean, if you look at what price action has done since uh, March 10th, right? The S&P is unchanged effectively, maybe up 1%. Um, crypto's up, or Bitcoin alone is up 25%. 
from that day. Like these are these are big divergences in you know these two asset classes, and obviously context the the context for that is interest rate volatility. So there's no question that macro funds are saying, hey, Bitcoin and crypto in general, this is a provenance hedge, right? If you if you put your deposits at a bank, it is it doesn't matter if it's Silicon Valley Bank or J.P. Morgan. Your job is not to analyze that bank's balance sheet and think about whether your deposits are safe or not. That's that's an investor's job. As a depositor, you just dump it in there, right? Um, and then one day, if you wake up and say, "Hey, I actually thought I had money and I don't," um, well, maybe I do, but the FDIC owns my deposit now, and I'm stuck in their receivership procedure for nine months. That's not ideal either. So. Anybody who's keeping cash at a middle tier regional bank, anybody who's looking at the broader macro picture and trying to think about what an unfurling of you know smaller banks might mean for the economy and for fund you know flows of funds, which is macro guys really, um, you know Bitcoin. Even if one percent of that community decides to stick a little bit more capital into Bitcoin, which you can store on your Ledger Nano and keep in your vault, um, and you own it. You're, uh, unless you lose the keys, of course. Uh, you know, I think that's it's. I think those sorts of thought processes are probably going through the minds of people who are trying to, you know, for a career being deeply analytical about what this actually means, what this what this banking issue means. Yeah, it's it, what's what's kind of interesting here is that uh, two years ago, three years ago, whenever I would talk about Bitcoin as as a monetary asset and you know i think that's where this discussion is mainly focused on right now just because of because of current events obviously crypto is much more than that but as a, as a as a, you know as, as a as a baseline well why does why does bitcoin have value and my conversations would always start like this they would always go well you as somebody that's in the first world that's in the us you don't need to worry about it as much but there are countries around the world where banks fail frequently. There are countries around the world that experience high inflation rates. There are countries around the world where you can't trust your government or your central bank to manage monetary policy effectively. And today, you don't have to qualify that with that with that first statement as much, right? I still have infinitely more trust in the Fed and the U.S. government to manage the dollar than I would, you know. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to insult anybody or name, name countries, but as you know, for, for for countries that don't have this effective effective monetary policy, but it's it's one of those it's it's one of those paradigm shift moments, as, as as Jonas said, where if you're sitting here in the U.S. now, that's something that unfortunately you have to think about. So as much as we don't want depositors to be investors, we don't want depositors to have to worry about that. We don't want that mental cognitive load on these guys. People have it now. You, you have you, you you unfortunately have to think like that and it actually goes back if you really you know dig, dig deep well it goes back to the fed raising rates right in an unprecedented fashion so svb threw their money into 1.68 yielding mbs for 10 years because at the time the fed was sitting there saying inflation is transitory and don't worry we're not going to raise rates. That's not happening. And however naive it was at the time, they trusted the Fed. Inflation's transitory. Very unlikely to raise rates. Okay, we're going to listen to you guys. And we're going to go put our money in this because we don't think that there's a 10 sigma move on the horizon. And in a, in a world where mistakes happen, 
in a system that is as fragile as the one that we have, you have to take steps to protect yourself, right? And what are those steps? Well, maybe Bitcoin's one of them. And so that is the path of logic that a lot of the smartest guys in the room are taking. A lot of the macro funds are realizing that a lot of the high net worth individuals are realizing. So you just walk down that logic path and you come to the realization relatively quickly that our system is imperfect. And when you're faced with an imperfect system, you need to hedge. Yeah, and hedging, you don't need to, you know, it's not like if your portfolio is 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and then you, you look at this and think, gosh, you know, things could get a little hairy here. I need to move, move into Bitcoin. You're not going to go from 60, 40 stocks, bonds to, you know, 10% stocks, 10% bonds, 80% Bitcoin and ETH, right? All you have to do is move a little bit of your money into Bitcoin or ETH or both. Uh, for the asymmetry of, of these fat right-tailed assets to protect you if, if something crazy does indeed happen. Um, so it's not like we're expecting, you know, the macro community or pension funds or real money to just start pouring capital into into crypto, but we're expecting it to trickle in pretty steadily. And, you know, the Fed's between a rock and a hard place right now. They have, they have supply-side inflationary pressures and a banking crisis. Like, it's, you know... <laughs> They sort of have to pick what they want to fix. They can't fix both problems at the same yeah. time. And that's, you know, Avi, you actually tweeted it. It's a pretty, pretty hilarious and super on point tweet where you were saying, hey, Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's trading like it's an alternative banking system or something. And, you know, at the end of the day, kind of is. But do you really think that, so Avi, that, I mean, but what, what you guys are saying really resonates with me. I don't know if you guys remember Wences Casares. He started Zappo, which then got sold to Coinbase, became Coinbase Custody. But he, I remember he had this line, I forget when I heard it, like 2015 or 16 or something, he said, uh, Bitcoin makes an incredible amount of sense to folks outside outside of the United States because uh, their government oftentimes doesn't work and their banking system doesn't work. The reason Bit Bitcoin is, uh, the United States is the hardest country in the world to explain Bitcoin is because your money works and your government works or your banking system works and your, and your government works. And so I think... Like that, that obviously resonates with me. It resonates with the three of us. But for these big macro funds, it like uh, part of me is a little bit skeptical that that's why they're buying Bitcoin here. A part of me thinks that like they're just looking to get out on the risk spectrum again. And yeah, you know. I, I don't think so because I mean, you don't think so. You, like it's it, yeah. I mean, the the easiest way to look at it is okay. Like Gold, Goldman has a has a high retail interest basket. Yeah, barely. It's not. It's like not. Yeah. Up like two percent, right? You you go go look at like the Arc funds, go look at Tesla, yeah. Go, yeah. Go look go look at like you know tech stocks, right? That it, it it's very clear to me that uh, the majority of money that's driving Bitcoin, it's not like, and you saw this in the beginning of January, by the way. So in the beginning of January, everything ripped together. QQQ was you know ripped with Bitcoin, like Arc ripped, everything that you would assume. When people are like, okay, we're risk on, let's go get, let's go get long, all of that stuff ripped alongside of Bitcoin. And that's not true this time. Uh, Bitcoin is actually, I mean, what, what's actually ripped relative to historic standards, but gold and Bitcoin. So that tells you something a little bit different. Yeah. Right. We know why gold's ripping and it's uh, China, China buy. I mean, yeah. who knows? Maybe, maybe they're letting some of the 10 trillion worth of US dollar denominated securities roll off and investing that into things like gold and hey maybe bitcoin they might not be publicizing that that yeah. investment decision but 
you know, if you're if the dollar, the user experience of the dollar is deteriorating, right? If the Fed and the Treasury were just stable custodians providing predictable, you know, open banking access and a, and a really a really well controlled two percent inflation target. I think people would be happier to use the dollar. Instead, you know, the institutions in Washington, some of them at least, are, are weaponizing the dollar, requisitioning the dollars that other governments thought they had, particularly Russia. And so, you know, I think a lot of people running running governments that oversee, you know, billions of citizens are are starting to say, hey, maybe I should diversify a little bit. Maybe this dollar might not be as stable as we thought forever. Maybe something uh, a little bit more immaculately conceived like Bitcoin can can protect 1% of my portfolio better than U.S. Treasuries uh, would have done. I don't know yeah. if it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting question you asked though, Yano, about like are macro funds actually buying because because Bitcoin is a solution for emerging markets? Like maybe not, but we're, we're in a different paradigm now as Avi and I right. were sort of talking about. It's like there was the 2010s where it was just a hunt for yield, right? Oh, a money losing startup that, uh, you know, basically like we work, sure, whenever we'll put money in it. Now we're not in that paradigm anymore. We're, we're sort of, we're at the beginning of the super cycle of some sort of future of money and a clearly unpegged inflation uh, regime. So what does that mean? I think macro funds are hunting for the assets that are going to perform in that paradigm and Bonds aren't one of those assets anymore. So, and Jonah, I've been wait. I've, I've been waiting for the word supercycle to come back, man. And I'm uh, I'm, I'm happy you dropped it. So, <laughs> um, Avi, do you think we are setting up for? Is this a monster Bitcoin rally that is upon us, or is this a nice little Bitcoin rally fades off into a little ETH rally and alts, and it's a nice little bump? Yeah, on the on the short term, I that's actually what I think. Like over the over the next three months, that that is what I think. But what this does is the same thing that COVID did in March of 2020, mm. which is that it shifts people's mindset to be a lot more open to crypto than it was previously. So that when the time is right, they will start flooding it. My end of year price target for 2026 is 150K. That I think is is very cheap. Should I, I'd even bump it up to 20, 2025 at this point. And the reason that I think it's achievable is because you now have an entire population, the wealthiest country on the planet, primed to understand Bitcoin's value in a way that they have never been primed to understand it before. And so regardless of what happens, like let's take a scenario where this is it. Credit Suisse gets bailed out. Everybody ends up happy. There's not a single other bank that fails. Everything goes back to normal. We get a mild recession. The Fed starts cutting. Risk starts ripping, right? All of the quote-unquote narratives for Bitcoin fade, fade away. Bitcoin does extremely well in that scenario still because when it's risk on, the population has been primed to think of Bitcoin as a, as a real asset now in many ways, as, as, as an asset that can actually potentially have value, right? And so if this hadn't happened, then we probably would have gone up less when the mat when the macro environment shifts and risk and risk comes up. So the way that I the way that I think about it is like this is this is this is fuel for the eventual explosion of BTC and eventual eventual adoption of BTC. It just ratchets up that adoption curve. Mm -hmm. right? And and interestingly enough, as as that adoption curve ratchets up, 
you know, all super cycles that we talk about in the commodities market are driven by demand, right? The, the big one in oil that happened in the 2000s was because China opened up and just started consuming a ton of commodities. In Bitcoin, I think we all, you know, obviously this is the empire podcast. We all agree that demand for crypto is going to go up over time and that, you know, it's got a killer app already, but against that backdrop, you have something that, you know, almost never happens in commodity markets, which is in 2024, the supply of Bitcoin is going to get cut in half, right? It's not even a constant supply side picture. I, I was going to ask how that, yeah, how to have it in place. Bananas, and then cool. where's half the Bitcoin? Like, I don't know. I think it, at some point you have to look at the last three of these things and the price action that occurred after them. Yeah. For also from just from a liquidity perspective right now, Jonah, if I wanted to go buy a hundred million bucks of Bitcoin, how much do you think I'm moving the price? Depends how sloppy you are, Avi. You're a careful guy. I think you'd probably move it by 1%. hundred million is not that much money to move. Uh, Four hundred billion dollars. I think a hundred million is moving the is moving the price of one percent in this market right now. Absolutely, um, oh, maybe, that is more than I. Well, maybe you know during some of the battleship liquidity like ultra stable environments of of maybe last summer, um, maybe twenty five bips, thirty bips. But right now, good luck. Like, yeah, it's a remarkably low amount of a lot and move this market one right percent. So yeah. all it takes is a you know a couple large players just start allocating the kickoff sometime moving off, which I think is actually what happened, which is why Bitcoin rallied so hard from 20K to 26. It was very likely a few large players had decided to allocate. I think that they're there, as far as I understand it, I actually generally have better insight into this given given where he sits. Uh, post SVB, there were a lot of macro funds hitting up desks, asking them about Bitcoin. Now, whether they bought or not, uh, you know, I think I think they I think they did, but the 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 interest has gone up tremendously uh, since uh, since SBB went down. Now I don't I still don't necessarily think that starts an immediate run. I'm still on the you know side of we kind of need risk to be okay. I don't think Bitcoin's hitting 30k. Best and Peach rates 3700. It's just very unlikely from 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 my perspective. But it does set up uh, for Bitcoin outperformance over time. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. I was going to say, Avi, you know, um, you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, we, when you're a liquidity provider, you have some people that are, you know, consistently trading with you, consistent counterparties. You have some people that show up once in a blue moon. And then you have the people that come out of the woodwork pretty much only when something extraordinary is going on and you realize that you're just their backstop, um, provided you're, you're still around, which a lot of trading firms, uh, aren't anymore after the events of the last year, but it's funny. We got in, in that last bucket of you're our backstop. We're not really your friends and we just, we need you right now. Like we've had more of that inquiry in the last week than we had during FTX, which tells you something. Hmm. Tells you a lot. Avi, how does this think? And then John, I want to get your take on the same question too. Like how does this uh, impact how you think about other narratives in crypto? like the alt L1 trade or uh, even just like ETH BTC has been falling a lot. Like how does this change how you think about ETH or L L2s? Like would love to get your thought on that. I know you play a lot in like sushi and stuff and you know, kind of different protocols and yeah. How does this change how you think about this stuff? Yeah, I'll say that uh, I'll talk about ETH BTC for a second. I yeah. think the, the, the story of this year when it comes to majors is supply. 
So on the BTC side, you have the Mt. Gox coins that are coming out. You've got this 40,000 uh, BTC that are being auctioned off by the auctioned off by the state. On the ETH side, you have the unlocks the unlocks from Shanghai um, that are around, around the corner. Although actually, I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, Lido well, unfortunately won't be ready to process withdrawals uh, when, when Shanghai, yeah. Shanghai goes yeah. on, which, which is which is contributing to I think a little bit of heaviness on Lido. Um, which you know, I, I, I do, I do think it's a, it's, it's a little, it's a little silly. Like the, the entire point of Lido is to stake ETH, so that was that, that was that was unfortunate. <laughs> but uh, you know, so I think w- what what we're seeing right now is we're seeing mainly well two two things. Uh, one, there was that on on ETH, uh, there was that story on uh, that New York AG came out and they actually had two three paragraphs on why they thought ETH might be a security. And then also you have the the fears the fears about Shanghai, which I think are both contributing to ETH BTC underperformance. And then you have uh, on the on the bot on the buy side, people are the the type of person that's entering crypto right now that's driving prices are everybody that we've just talked about. So it's the people that are buying Bitcoin because it's a monetary based asset and they're not buying Ethereum, right? It's not the Silicon Valley folk that are buying Ethereum because it's going to be the platform for every new application that's built in Web three, which I think was a lot of the app performance before it was these like tech focused guys. Now that participant in the market are these macro focused guys, right? The or girls uh, buying buying Bitcoin. And, you know, it's it's right now, ETH just has a lot of headwinds because of that, because Bitcoin has the narrative and ETH has the supply uh, coming, coming live in Shanghai. Now, at some point, Gox is going to start distributing. And at some point, I think, the supply, the supply for Bitcoin starts to starts to starts to come alive a little bit more, and then ETH BTC can start to start to outperform. But you know, I'd say I'm tactically bearish ETH BTC for the next two months, and then I'll probably flip tactically bullish on on, on ETH on ETH BTC. You know, I think mm-hmm. this is definitely the most Bitcoin denominated I've been in a while, and anecdotally, that actually isn't true for a lot of crypto natives. Yeah, Jonah, agree or disagree with that? I agree until the halving comes up and then you probably need to be short ETH BTC again. Um, See, that's a very good point. So I think what's interesting is normally when crypto pukes, Bitcoin dominance rises because Bitcoin is the, you know, the bellwether of space and sort of the one with the biggest adoption. I think it would be really telling if you get a, a powerful rally in crypto where Bitcoin dominance increases. I think that tells you that maybe some of the the froth and the heat in Web three is cooling off a little bit, and Bitcoin is, is sort of proving its macroeconomic and geopolitical value to a broader participant base than you know young people who are passionate about Web three and all of its promise, which which I believe it has. But you know the Gartner hype cycle, where are we on that right now for Web three? Probably cooling off a bit, and I think Bitcoin is coming out of a trough of disillusionment into you know I think a demand driven. Um, you know, steady long-term uptrend with plenty of like immediate term chop and dips to buy. Hopefully this is, this is, this is wild chop. And I think, you know, just looking at my screener here, my dashboard, um, I don't think that this, you know, this year looks like previous crypto years where you see Bitcoin and ETH rally. And then, you know, you get a, a follow through with kind of a levered alt up trade. Um, there's a real divergence. If you sort by year-to-date returns dominated in ETH, 
there's a pretty spectacular divergence of returns amongst, you know, a, a lot of relevant tokens. It's not just like alts are trading like this levered ETH bucket anymore. They're, the wheat is getting separated from the chaff right now. Mm, 100%. That's also what makes it great for active traders. And I think we yeah. said this uh, on, on our previous on our previous cast, but th there, there's, there's a real... Um, there's a real tightening in the market happening right now where people are pulling their money from bad assets and putting them in good assets. And those bad assets tend to just decay over time because you have, I mean, it, crypto again is, is almost, uh, like I think the entire market th this year and last year has almost always been the supply story. You have, you have teams that are unlocking, you have investors that are unlocking and the only people that aren't selling are the people that really believe in their product. And so because retail is not in the market anymore, there's not, this large organic demand that can absorb, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars that are being emitted by the investors and by, by the team. And so what you get is you get this decay from projects that are bad and you get a basing from projects that are good where the team and investors are willing to hold on because they actually believe in the product long-term. And that's really good. That's really good for crypto. Uh, and to go back to your point, Jonah, about BTCD, this is a, is a very calming and like nice to see BTCD go up on this rally. It's like, okay, there, that to me, what it means is that there's real money coming in, right? Uh, you know, and, and I think at some point in the future, this, this will just always happen. Once Bitcoin gets to a certain level and it gets high enough, my bet would be 40 to 45K. Then you start to see some really crazy alts. Then you start to see your five X's in, in a week. Then you start to see uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of retail come back, come, come back in the market. And maybe you start to see the trash start to rally more aggressively than, than the stuff, than, than the stuff that's good. Uh, but for the time being, that's actually, this is actually a really great environment, you know, for fundamental investors too, right? So you, you can actually go look at, at projects that are doing good stuff. I mean, you know, there, there's an L2 building built, building on, building on BTC stacks and you go look at them, their transaction counts are up a ton ever since ordinals came out. Uh, their user interfaces, you know, for, for a lot of the protocols that are being built on pretty, pretty solid, the full disclosure we, we, we do on it. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's these things. It's like, okay, well, things are actually developing. Things are actually, things are actually getting used. There's, uh, there's, there's real progress that's being made. And that's a, that, that's a, that's a beautiful thing to see. What do you think Bitcoin dominance ends at? It's at what forty five now, somewhere between forty five to fifty now, maybe. Yeah, I I I think um, I don't I don't like calling specific levels because I think it's very it's very context dependent on how we yeah. how we there. Um, but my my view on Bitcoin dominance would be that effectively until either Bitcoin trades thirty to thirty five in the short term or we get past Shanghai uh, and we start worrying about Mt. Gox unlocks. Um, those are the two things that are going to, that, that are going to top BTCD. So like if we get to 35 K in the next month, two months, then I'm probably calling a top one BTCD. Or if we're in August of this year, I'm probably calling a top one without Bitcoin and 35 K I'm probably calling a top one BTCD. All right, quick break from the show. There is this kind of overused cliche saying in crypto, but 
It's true. Bear markets are building and everyone tells you that and everyone knows it. What people don't know is that if you're building apps in crypto and building apps in Web3 without using QuickNode, you're building on hard mode. So QuickNode is, is this amazing blockchain development platform. It reduces costs, streamlines the time to market for your app, and it offers consistent performance at scale. For folks that have built apps, you will know that there are a couple key points here. One, QuickNote offers unlimited endpoints across 18 different chains and 35 different networks. They have response times that are two and a half times faster than any of their competitors, 99.99% uptime and a dedicated 24 seven customer support team. If you've been listening to Empire for a while, you might know that I am no Gigabrain developer, but I do know a lot of devs and a lot of great product teams at other places. So when I see Coinbase and Twitter and Adobe and OpenSea and Dune Analytics, all leveraging and trusting QuickNode to power their business, that's when we get excited and that's when we wanna partner with them. They're the best solution for any leading crypto and Web3 company that is seeking an end-to-end -end blockchain development platform right out of the box. So my message to you, get off hard mode, let QuickNode handle the blockchain infrastructure, let QuickNode handle the security, let QuickNode handle the performance while you focus on building beautiful products for your users. Visit quicknode.com, super easy. You can use code EMPIRE. You'll get a free month on their build plan. So don't forget to use code EMPIRE. Santi and I got to get credit for this one so they know that we sent you and you will get a first month free. Hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, Shanghai, you think it'll be short-term short -term selling, negative for ETH, long-term bullish? I mean, the way that they've designed Shanghai, it, it's... It's kind of hard to pull too much ETH out of, out of you know, the basically the pool of staked ETH that's out there. It can't be withdrawn quickly. If there's congestion in the queue to to withdraw, like there's a limit to the you know there's a bottleneck in that pipeline to withdraw. Yeah. So, you know, I think it. I, I don't really foresee a massive dump occurring on Shanghai. I think you just sort of watch the congestion queues and and trade accordingly. I I don't think it's it's the sort of uh, event everybody's making it out to be in terms of a big price mover. I, I don't see a lot of volatility around that. Yeah. I want to get your guys' take on things other than than Bitcoin and ETH. And one of them is uh, USDC and the PEG. You started to see different, I think it was like Jane Street and DR. I think you guys were dumping a little bit, Jonah, um, or DRW maybe. I don't know. I'm, I might be totally botching the uh, uh, who, who this was. But anyway, some institutions were that I, that I think held a lot of USDC were starting to dump it. And my, if I'm trying to like think about the second order impacts of this, once you have something like USDC where the peg is broken, I would think that maybe there's like, for some of the heavily regulated institutions from a compliance perspective, they maybe can't hold it anymore. Um, I could be totally off there, but I'm curious to get your guys' take. Like what are the long-term implications for something like USDC since this depegging event? Yeah, sure. I mean, we traded a ton of USDC during that you know, this over it's basically over the last week. And I think, you know, crypto Twitter will identify one of our wallets and say, hey, you know, DRW did X, Y, or Z, that they're never getting a full picture. So right. it's, you know, it's it's if if they see us selling a bunch of it, um, they're probably just missing all the USDC that we're buying on the other side from other people um mm -hmm. in different wallets. It's it's super confusing to to do that on chain kind of forensics. <laughs> but you don't know whose wallet is it. But um at at a macro level, what we saw in USDC when it depegged, there was 
Selling of USDC at a time when the Fed wire closed and the 24-7 banking solutions that TradFi has basically set up to service crypto banking needs over the weekend, crypto banking needs are usually stablecoin related, were um, Signet and Set, which belong to Signature and Silvergate, which are suddenly, you know, banks that went from being not that risky to kind of scary to to park your cash on either of those those 24/7 banking networks uh, as that you know going into that weekend when the fed wire closed. So if you can't wire cash and stables are your source of liquidity and you're concerned that that USDC may have, you know, per, perhaps a, a problem on their hands due to Silicon Valley Bank um you know holding some of USDC's deposits um you know you're going to see a lot of selling, right? And we traded billions of dollars worth of these tokens. Ultimately, the the liquidity that companies like Cumberland DRW provide during those times end up shoring up, but basically minimizing the volatility in those depegging events. And usually, the deep, the, the peg is is retained quicker the more liquidity there is. So imagine if there were no liquidity providers figuring out ways to wire cash, put up capital, take risk, buy you know discounted stable coins whose balance sheets are just fine during times of crisis, the price would jackknife a lot lower on all that panic selling. So ultimately, uh, we weren't we weren't dumping it. We were just providing two-way liquidity, which we think contributed to a faster reversion to the meat, which is parity. Yeah, I, I think on, on on USDC, it was kind of, it was, it was, it was kind of interesting to me. I mean, uh, I, I, put out, I put out a tweet that did some preliminary math on it before they had put out the statement that they had 3.3 billion. With it with SVB, uh, and even after that three point three billion dollar hole was disclosed, which is about eight percent, what was what what was odd to me was that like even in the worst case estimate, you were probably looking at at seventy five percent recovery from SVB, you know maybe maybe seventy seventy five percent, and what was very odd was that USDC traded to like eighty eight cents. Because that's way way below fair yeah. market value from from my perspective, uh, and so I think it was a, a lot. A lot of it was just panic, um, and then even once, even even once the the the, the backstop was announced, it took it took a bit to fully fully repack. I mean, it was trading at ninety seven cents, and that was you know it was it wasn't an immediate immediate reversal. And so I think um, you know in terms of will institutions touch USDC moving forward, I think they will. Because I think this this was this was a bit of an unprecedented unprecedented mm-hmm. thing, uh, and also USDC is so ingrained into crypto, and as a regulated institution, are you really going to switch to Tether, or if a new stablecoin comes out, are you really going to bet that that new stablecoin is going to do a better job of managing risk than USDC, which has probably put up like probably the most stringent risk, uh, you know, ri- uh, they're probably tackling this stuff with full force right now. They, they probably hired a bunch of people to go monitor this 24-7. They're probably going to be the flightiest people you've ever met, which is a good thing, by the way. Um, you know, so I, I, I think that from an institutional perspective, your choice is either kind of use USDC, which is still the safest stablecoin from, from, from my opinion today, uh, you know, post, uh, post SVB and, or don't touch stablecoins in crypto, which by the way is, is a reasonable thing to say. Uh, you know, maybe you don't want to touch stable coins, stable coins in crypto anymore. Maybe you're more worried about that than you are about ETH. Um, one one thing that was interesting is that uh, 
liquidity traded really well because liquidity is a is is a token and full disclosure we don't own any uh li- liquidity liquidity is a token that allows you to mint a stable coin purely backed by eth it's like the biggest actually decentralized stable coin that's not backed by by usdc anyway and the thing just ripped so there could also just be a product market fit for these types of things uh where you know the risk and the risk is the price of eth and that is easily mm-hmm. controlled for more at least more easily controlled for than not knowing who you know the banking partners of these stable these stable coins are. So there's 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 a, there's a little bit there's a little bit of doubt that might find a, a find a product market fit. But I don't view this as the end for USDC by but by, by any by any means. And I also think that it, it's it's times like that that offer really fantastic opportunity in the market to have some have some balls and and make and make a bet. <laughs> right. I mean U, USDC trading trading at ninety cents. You know, obviously this is, this is hindsight, um, but you could just look at my public Twitter feed and, and the math that I did, the fact that I was telling people that really shouldn't be trading below 90 cents. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's opportunity right there. No, I agree with you. I mean, those are the times that harden hardened protocols, right? Like you think about March, 2020, that flash crashed down maker made it through and like, yeah, you could, you could argue that that really hardened maker that they, that they made it through that. DeFi has been looking amazing throughout all this, but it almost feels like TradFi is, is failing crypto at the moment it's a uh, you know the silicon valley bank just rugs circles deposit circle does a fantastic job by the way that is a top-notch team those guys are professionals they manage risk better than anyone in the stable coin industry they're incredible yeah. um it's pretty interesting to see the the tables turn a bit um i'm just happy that uh you know the ftic stepped in yeah agreed agreed Shout out to the Circle team. Um, I know we only have a couple minutes left here, guys. Any any other trends that you guys think are interesting outside of kind of the majors that you're paying attention to? Avi, I know you posted about some alts the other day. Um, you mentioned Stacks. You did some stuff with Sushi a couple months ago. Like, what what are you paying attention to that you find interesting, either from a trading perspective or just crypto interest? Well, from a from from a trading from a trading perspective, I'm I'm honestly focused a lot a lot on just the vol- the volatility of the majors. Uh, there's been a lot of opportunities and also in uh in, Bit- in bitcoin and ethereum, ethereum options i think um, one thing that i've mentioned on a on a few podcasts is that uh you tend you tend to get uh you know pretty depressed vol uh because the structural nature of the vol market right now is that they're just a bunch of sellers so for example when bitcoin was trading 20k vol was in the 50s that was a steal Right, that was that was that was an absolute steal. Like that 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 dislocation just just didn't make sense. So I think the option market pre- presents a reasonable amount of opportunity right now. Uh, I also, you know, I'm directionally very bullish on DeFi in general because I think like when you think about Bitcoin as an alternative banking system, DeFi are like the actual like that that's actually where the banking system can be can be replicated. Uh, BTC is a, is a great asset to hold, uh, but all the functionality. Of a bank account uh, and all the functionality of the financial system exists exists in DeFi. So I think the recent crises are just as good for DeFi long term as they are as they are for Bitcoin. First, it's going to be good for Bitcoin, then it's going to be good for DeFi. Yeah. And so we're looking at you know I think uh, there there are, there are a lot of protocols that are working that are working very hard that are working very hard right now. There's some protocols that are not working hard at all. Uh, and so <laughs> you just find the find the ones that are working hard and you you short the ones that are not working hard. <laughs> Um, that's a good take. I mean, I guess I've kind of a boring answer to your question, Yano. I, I guess the, the craziest altcoin that I've been 
you know, looking at recently is GBTC, <laughs> Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It's uh, the discount has ripped from minus 46% all the way up to 30% back down to 40%. I mean, if you, mm. if you look at this in terms of annualized percentage returns of these moves, it's gargantuan. And given that, you know, the product market fit of, of Bitcoin, um, that that's sort of manifesting itself in this in this market paradigm combined with uh, all the legal and regulatory nuance behind that particular trust um you have you know to to quote obvious some some real vault trade uh, i also think the options market is is probably one of the most interesting places to to get involved in crypto trading right now um it's interesting to me as a you know former options trader to watch People continue to bash out calls with with reckless abandon against their their Bitcoin length, their ETH length, just trying to earn a little bit of extra yield, without seeming to realize that risk free yields have, have gone up. So they should theoretically be demanding more carry for their option selling than 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 the let's look at it. It's like there's less than a vol differential between implied and realized right now. They're basically selling it out at fair value. So for all you option buyers out there, the audience. It's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, lots of leverage in in a good way in your favor. Last question here, just actually on the leverage side of things. I feel like a lot of the collateral, I, th I think you could make a fair argument that a lot of the last cycle was just a bunch of collateral uh, and like leverage floating around in the system. This cycle, um, the like off-chain leverage, so the, you know, the BlockFi's and Celsius's and the Genesis's of the world like aren't really here anymore. What do you think the just leverage space and like collateral looks like in the in the next cycle? Like, how is it different than the last cycle? Well, I think for one, you're going to see uh, you're you're going to see some serious competition from actual prime brokerages mm. in the space from traditional capital markets. Yeah. So like traditional capital markets. Yeah, I, I you know I I think that there there there's a lot that works right now. I mean, you talk to almost every bank; they have a crypto team now, and some of the banks are actually kind of pretty far along in the process um i think they're just waiting they're waiting for regulatory clarity which is by the way probably the largest topic that we didn't hit on in this podcast so yeah love to talk about it on another podcast at some time because it's very very. i mean ma maybe once you guys bring back thousand x then uh you can talk about events so. yeah <laughs> soon 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 love it uh but but yeah i i i also i also think that you're probably just going to see less yeah. you're going to see less leverage in the system yeah. and that's I mean, leverage doesn't combine well with with this kind of volatility it, it stops people out but yeah you know commodities are a very leveraged product because they're all futurized and traded on exchanges where collateral is centrally managed and cleared and guaranteed and like you said avi i think i think we're getting towards that model and and once you can feel confident in uh the security of the repository of your assets then you, you start to feel comfortable levering them up a little bit yeah. Fellas, any last thoughts? No, I, it's always fun talking to, talking to both. I always have a conversation. So I appreciate you having us on the podcast. Did out. Love you guys. Be well, fellas. Thanks. Thanks.